that's what's gonna keep enablement alive as a profession and not turn us into ops. I love ops, I love my ops friends. I've been in ops for years, but they're the numbers, we're the human. And without both of those, we're not gonna continue. We're just gonna turn into execution engines, which is what revenue teams used to do 20 years ago. And it was very much of a spray and pray approach. We proved in the last few years that that doesn't work. That burns market share and ultimately has short-lived companies. Companies that wanna to continue to live on for 20 and 30 and 50 years need to take a strategic approach into the market, understand their buyers, understand what their buyers care about and relate every interaction to that. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny the Rev, coming to you for another episode. Joined this week by someone who could only be described as one of the matriarchs in RevOps and revenue enablement. With a lengthy list of accolades, not least of which includes in 2023, Sales Enablement Collective named her one to watch the year before in 2022 she was listed as best women in sales support holy smokes i don't know why she's doing anything with a slouch like me but the vp of revenue enablement from procore sarah gross is in the house to talk about why we are better together with revops and enablement when we are peers as opposed to situated beneath or above one another. Throughout this episode, Sarah's going to do a lot to legitimize why the three-legged stool of business partners to sales, whether that's HR, whether that's ops or enablement, why they cannot cannibalize one another as being a part of one another, but in fact need to stand equally and laterally from one another in support of the sales organization. You don't want to hear it from me. You want to hear it from someone who is an absolute badass. So with that said, I'm going to put a cork in it. It's time for DJ to spin that. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Gong Studios. Danny Wasserman, Danny the Rev, the Wasp Boss Sauce. We still haven't determined what all you like, so keep hitting me up. Whatever moniker is least cringe. Yes, but we're not here to talk about how cringy I am because we have someone in the house today who's hitting us between the eyes with the truth. The truth about all misnomers, misunderstandings, misconceptions about enablement and how to supercharge that. As someone that sits within that business function, I am tickled pink getting ready to hear from someone who has spent years on the operations side and most recently in the last six months has assumed the throne of the VP of Revenue Enablement at Procore, we are talking to none other than Sarah Gross. And my God, there's nothing gross about what she's about to tell us. Sarah, welcome to Reveal. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate the warm welcome. Oh, my goodness. All right. So talking about enablement. Well, at least within the organizations I've sat in, it typically falls underneath revenue operations or operations at large. And I think hierarchically, there's some implications there, right? So if you fall within an organization, are you under their thumb? If we take this to an extreme, are you just kind of the whipping boys and whipping girls or the minions or the peons of, hey, go execute on this? And I think that in some organizations, that's very much the case. 
And in your own experience, I'm wondering if you have such a top-down approach, well, does that disenchant or disenfranchise the enablement people who are doing very noble work? But talk to us a little bit about if that's commonplace, is that good? Is that bad? What would you say? Yeah, it's a great question. And honestly, I think it really does depend on the organization. I'm going to preface it with that. But it also depends on what expectation your enablement leadership has set for Mm -hmm. what the function will do. Um, So I don't know that it's bad for it to be in ops if the ops leader understands the function of enablement as that put a pink bow on it, if you will, uh, at the end of the project versus be the person who's like, here, this thing's, we're not really sure how this is going to work, but like just shove it down the salespeople's throats, (laughs) right? So if you have that understanding with your ops leader, it can work. I do believe, though, and I've seen it work much better reporting into the revenue leader directly, being a peer to the operations um, individual. And I always call it with my sales leaders, it's the triangle you need to have, right? Or your pedestal, HR, ops, and enablement. You need all three of those. It starts with the humans and HR and getting the right people hired, getting them into um, an operational territory and quota and having that structure and setup, and then having enablement that onboards them effectively, upskills them effectively, and continues to understand what do we need to be effective? And it goes back into that circle, right? Whether it's the wrong person, we got to push it back to HR, whether it's the wrong territory structure, we got to work with our operations. But that, that I, I said triangle, but really it should be a circle, right? It has to keep yeah. going so we can keep being effective. So I made the move at Ring Central. I was in the operations team um, and I made a business case of why we should report to the CRO at the time. Um, and I had created the relationship with him that he backed that up, right? Same thing actually with Procore. I was originally into the operations team. And as we've developed what the structure of that team should be in this business partnership structure and setup where a business partner and enablement is aligned to a business partner and the revenue team, it made a lot more sense for that to sit actually with the CRO because he's my business partner, and then his VPs are aligned to someone on my team, just like they're aligned in ops and just like they're aligned with HR business partners. So Sarah, as you're talking about this, whether it's a circle, whether it's a triangle, I was even thinking, oh my goodness, are these just different corners of the same sandbox? Curious, can you help define or delineate what are those remits, especially between enablement and ops, if they now both report into the CRO. I'm less concerned about people stepping on toes in HR, but I think at least if you're in ops as an entire sort of Russian nesting doll structure, (laughs) then it's easier. But now your parallel organizations, how do you avoid people inadvertently colliding? Yeah, you know, I've never really been a fan of like the races and the SOPs, uh, but I do think we're in a world where that is become really important because we're doing more with less people. And so you need it defined of Danny's doing X and that moves to Sarah at X. It's almost like back to college with supply chain management, right? Um, As I think about the sandbox, um, I really think it's important to define like what are the major projects that are coming from your CRL? So typically I've seen Mm -hmm. three to four corporate initiatives. And then within those, what's the role of ops? And when does that hand the baton to enablement to actually get it out to the team? What does enablement need to have from ops to enable effectively? So things such as, you know, a a work, I think of rolling out a new CPQ tool, right? Um, The ops team needs to identify what should the workflow be? Maybe the enablement team comes in and gets a couple of reps to test. Does that workflow work with how I think? 
and go through my quote. Then it goes back to ops to do all the pressure testing with IT and the structure. And then it goes back to enablement to actually roll that out, um, outline the process, maybe in a walk me or something of that nature with the uh, an ops team, make sure it gets right. And then ultimately te- use that test group to then help us be um, evangelists in the field of what that new process looks like. So it is this back and forth. There can't be like distinct swim lanes where ops owns CPQ and enablement owns onboarding because you're always going to need what each other does. It's defining what does ops need to give to enablement or enablement give to ops in order to do the thing that's next in the swim lane. I think we've not done that well, if I'm honest. In the past where ops team have said, well, this is the process, but they did no testing with the field. So enablement looks like the bad guy because enablement is getting shit on, if you will, that the process sucks. Um, but they didn't even develop it. The ops team does. So then they point to ops and then ops points back to enablement and says, well, you didn't enable it well. And so instead we really should be passing the baton before the handoff. So we're all on the same page. Enablement does what enablement does well, which is help communicate to the field and get feedback and make sure there's a closed loop with the revenue organization. And ops does what ops does well, which is build it in the system the right way that's scalable for the long-term future. But those two things have to work in parallel. When you talk about this fluidity between the organizations and obviously that maybe resulting unintentionally in a lot of finger pointing, a phrase you said that really struck me was the the way enablement thinks. And I think that there's something to unpack, which is, you know, ops is thinking about how are we going to architect CPQ in a way that doesn't totally implode on itself when we grow in the next 12 to 18 months. And I have no idea as an enabler. I don't know what that looks like, but I sure as shit know how to communicate things in ways where I'm not going to get blown out of the sky by those cynical grizzled sellers who really have no margin for fluff or no tolerance for things that feel really tone deaf or reek of corporate jargon and aren't in their voice. Mm -hmm. So I can do that. And I'm wondering, how do you explain that in a way? Because I think one is very tactical, right? Like, hey, I'm going to build CPQ and the business has value that it derives from you know, having a well-architected operational machine. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, how do we assign value to Danny's ability or your ability or team's ability to communicate in ways that don't disenchant or frustrate the sales team? One is much more abstract and less concrete. Both provide value. Let's talk about how you defend and equalize those contributions across the go-to-market team. I mean, the biggest way I've been able to do is literally show them. Um, so as an enablement leader, I've always run voice of revenue councils, right? Um, where yeah. We can help the ops team actually see what would that look like from the field's perspective before we even start and put all this work into it. So before there's mm-hmm. a business review document or for, before there's all these workflows built out, let's test the concepts conceptually with the field. And then yeah. let's come back to them iteratively with here's what we're thinking. Here's how it will build long term. And then the sales team can say, hey, I love that we're building for that long term. But instead of being on the left side, that button, can it be on the right? And it's such a little thing for ops. They wouldn't have even thought about that, but it means a lot to the revenue team. 
So our job in enablement is to help us look good. So honestly, our, our job in, in enablement in general is we're the octopus of making sure everybody looks good. <laughs> it's PMM, it's marketing, it's operations, it's HR. Um, every department touches enablement in a way that needs anyone who needs to communicate to the revenue team. And our job in that is to not necessarily be like, oh, we're the only people who know how to communicate with the revenue organization. Yeah. No, it's not that. It's, hey, let us help you make your project super successful. We understand that they want to give feedback because that's how salespeople work. They like to talk. They like to yeah. be part of the process. And so by making them part of the process and us lessening that burden on you and making your project equally successful, we can be partners in this together. You describe it as being the octopus, or I was thinking the hub and spoke, or even just these so, brokers, right? We're brokering so many relationships. Yeah. What does a good enablement hire then look like, right? If we serve as this connective tissue, do you have to have had the experience of being a seller to cut through the fluff, to know how to speak that vernacular and then translate it in between PMM and in between ops and in between corporate strategy where do you find those people that are those agents of peace? Yeah, it's a great thing. I, you know, I, I believe that the best enablers have the most tenacity of anyone in the world. Um, that to me is the biggest thing I look for in an interview because it's a really hard and sometimes very thankless job. Um, I'm actually just becoming a mother and it's very similar to being a mom. Like there are just these moments you have to look for the first time your kid smiles. You have to look for that first thank you you get from a rep um, and take that and screenshot it and keep it <laughs> for a rainy day um, because there are those, it, it's harder most days than it is easy. So I think tenacity is yeah. The most important thing, Danny, I, I don't know that having a sales background is what you have to have or having a marketing background. It's the person who has the tenacity that when someone is being uh, hard <laughs> to communicate with, keeps going and keeps asking questions. Uh, so as an example, your top reps always going to be like, I got it. I don't need your help. So instead of saying, hey, Danny, I'd love to I'd love to make you look like hot shit. Like, can you tell me what you're doing really well? You don't have to come teach it to new hires. I'm not going to ask anything. I know you're out there closing the million dollar deals, um, but I want to use your name and make you look like the great seller that you are. All of a sudden, then they buy in and I get slacks and I get messages from different reps and all this, they're like, hey, I did this really cool thing in this deal. Like, I'd love to show you the structure of the deal. That's where you know that you've really broken through and you start to get those advocates in the field. And that's what makes you a strong enabler. I'm thinking about what you just described. You know, we alluded to you being the octopus, you being the hub and spoke, these brokers. But as you just described, you're appealing to the human side of who all of these people are, the sellers as well as the cross-functional teams. So truly acutely aware and attuned to what tugs at people's heartstrings as human beings. And I think to do that well, you do have to be respectfully tenacious. So I, I love that takeaway. A question that I'd love to hear your thoughts on in appealing to the human tendencies, you know, mm -hmm. I think if we had all the time and all the money and the resources in the world, we would love to give everyone exactly what they asked for in a truly customized and bespoke way. And we know that in being so personalized and tailored, that flies in the face of scalability and standardization. Yeah. How do you on your teams reconcile that paradox that I think oftentimes plagues enablement? When people ask for things, perhaps the default instinct would be, sure, yeah, we'd love to give you that. Yep. But 
as we multiply the number of versions or iterations or flavors of what we give people, we create this rat's nest. And where do you draw the line and respectfully say, tough shit? Or where do you say, no way, Jose, we're doing it this way because this is what the company needs. And does that, if you do have to say no, does that all of a sudden contradict you appealing to the human side of who you serve? Yeah. So when you talk about the human element, like quick tip to all enablers out there, and I think this applies to actually to any role at a company, is have a notebook. Write down, you know, Danny, two kids, one dog named Billy, right? Um, those are the things that, that people, like that's a human element mm-hmm. of things. Think of like dating, right? When you start started meeting your spouse, the reason they knew you were interested in them is because you remembered facts and you were able to relate to them along the way as you went on different dates. Um, so I, I definitely think that's an important part about being an enablement yeah. because there is such a human side of things, but you have to scale. So if you think about the work that we do, I'm probably talking to 15 and 20 reps in a day sometimes. And so how do I remember everybody and what they're doing and what territories they fill and what their quota is and where they sit against quota? Um, well, I, you know, I write it down. I have the dashboards that our sales leaders are looking at so that I can quickly look people up and remember where they stand against that attainment. Um, and I, I, I tailor the way that I work with them and interact with them based on that. So if it's a top performer that went to club last week year, I say, hey, Danny, I'm so glad that you made it to club. I see you're only at 90% attainment. We're heading into Q4. What's your plan to get to 100 and 110% of attainment? What could I do to help you make that move? That is where we we really amplify. But how do you get to that level of detail? That was your question, right? Um, that's hard, <laughs> um, especially in this world where we've got one and two person enablement teams. So I always advise my team to live in the yes, but world. Um, so we enablers don't like to say no. Um, most people don't like to say no. Let's just all be honest. It's yeah. not just enablement, but typically you get a lot of people pleasers in the enablement world. And so being able to say, yes, Danny, I'd love to help you on that. I don't have resources dedicated to the post sales organization. What I could do is have a member of your team that can be like given an, um, a stretch project to, I'll provide them with the path I'm doing for pre-sales and they can modify it and assign it out to your team. That way you're getting all the good things we're still doing, knowing we can't have resources dedicated to you right now. And then why don't you and I work on a plan during the AOP process that we can fund a headcount for you next year. With our support together, I know we can make that happen. Nice. As you talk about running so many humanizing projects, to see the human who is behind that quote or that number. You're also talking about doing it on a skeleton crew and in an economic climate where enablement was really impacted by the widespread rifts across the economy. And I'm wondering, as you reconcile, hey, we have to be a little bit more hardline. Hey, we're managing to numbers. We're managing to performance. That can feel at times more heartless or cold. And yet here we are as the stewards of humanizing the people that are doing the work on the front lines. Talk to us about how you make sense of those competing directives. Being honest, I haven't gotten on board with the just flip to the numbers. Yeah. Um, And both of my enablement worlds, I've kept that human piece and said, we have to remember how important this is. Mm -hmm. 
So I'll show the numbers. Um, and I've done that in quarterly executive reviews to say, okay, Danny, here, here, here's enablement by the numbers, but here's some stories you really need to know from the field. So we did 8% lift by using high spot pitches across the team. Here's one of those pitches was to McDonald's and here's how it changed the game in the sales process. Here's how we learned that from Danny and we're going to replicate it across all of our strategic reps across you know, Q1 of 2024. Let me tell you about the number of learning paths that were created by, that were created by the team and, and taken by the team. Super important, right? At the high level, we did a thousand learning paths. Yeah. Um, but what you really want to know is what attainment did that change? Well, that increased attainment by 5% across the strategic team and across 3% in our mid-market team. Um, but let me explain what that actually meant to the people behind it. In our mid-market team, Danny got married and he had a baby. And that's what drove his percentage difference between 100% and 110% this year. So we're starting to indicate life changes. And I'm not saying we use those life changes against people in yeah. any way, shape or form. But I think we can start to get managers to coach to that. Let's run a coaching program where every manager asks their team across 2024, what is your personal goal? And then starts to relate that personal goal to what numbers they have to hit in order to bring in that cash. That's how we'll really get to our next level of attainment. So I think it's really important as enablers that we don't let those stories go. We don't go in and just take our five minutes. Um, it's okay to push them and make them give you 10 minutes, even if you're going over time and everyone's pissed off about it. At the end of the day, that's what's going to keep enablement alive as a profession and not turn us into ops. I love ops. I love my ops friends. I've been in ops for years, but they're the numbers. We're the human. And without both of those, we're not going to continue. We're just going to turn into execution engines, which is what revenue teams used to do 20 years ago. And it was very much of a spray and pray approach. We proved in the last few years that that doesn't work. That burns market share and ultimately has short-lived companies. Companies that want to continue to live on for 20 and 30 and 50 years need to take a strategic approach into the market, understand their buyers, understand what their buyers care about, and relate every interaction to that. That's what ABM marketing teams do. That's what enablement teams do really, really well. Ops plays a huge part in understanding the whole TAM and the market and breaking that down. But if you just do that and then you don't take the strategic approach to go after that TAM, you're never going to get to where you need to be. So I think it's important that enablement has a voice at the table right now. And when we have that voice, we don't just do what everybody in the room wants us to do. We do. I'm not saying don't do your homework and I'm not saying don't listen to your revenue leaders. Do what they ask for, but add your spin. Add what makes us unique and different because we know those stories in the field. We become invaluable to our CROs because they don't know. They, they don't have the ability to be in the floor as much as we do. Okay, guys, we're learning just how crucial it is for enablement and operations to be on speed dial with one another in order to drive shared success across the org. Get this, Gartner supports this entire hypothesis, finding that organizations which invest in both enablement and operations see a 30, 30% improvement in customer satisfaction. This tells us that the opportunity for growth is huge when it comes to focusing on these two areas and bringing these teams together. It tells us that when salespeople are equipped with the right tools and resources, they're more likely to succeed. Invest in both, not one or the other, and recognize that 
each team has its own unique talents that support the broader good. That's a win-win if I've ever heard one, am I right? Let's get back to Sarah and hear a little bit more about this. You described ops as the numbers and enablement as sort of the humans, and you can't have one without the other. And at a time when the teams have been stripped down in the wake of these rifts, technology is starting to come in and serve as a force multiplier for added capacity efficiency. And somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. between the pure numbers and the pure humans, there is technology. And I'm curious to get your perspective and philosophy. When do we over-rotate and over-index into technology where I can't remember exactly as you described it, but if we lose our human dimension and enablement, then we just become another extension or another tentacle in ops and that can't happen. So talk to us about how you are responsibly adopting technology and AI within an enablement lens. Listen, I think it's game changing. Um, Things like Gong, right? And others have really taken what is enablement and allowed us to even do that more broadly. So I used to sit next to reps reps with a splitter. I don't know if you remember this back in the day. Uh, And he literally split so I could have a headset on, they could have a headset on, I could hear what they were saying, but I wasn't actually talking to the person on the other end. Um, And that was invaluable at the time, right? Because I had the ability to understand what was a customer saying, what was my rep saying, and live coach them. Like that's what these technologies have brought to life. But then what they're doing for me in enablement is letting me listen to hundreds of conversations, boil that up, develop my enablement programs on top of that and say to my leader, I'm doing that because of these hundreds of calls that I analyzed. And because of this corporate initiative you want to drive, here's what we have to change from the field, the bottoms up uh, at your top down level to get where you need to go. Amazing. Well, as we've talked about, what are some of the misunderstandings or the pitfalls of conflating enablement with ops, putting enablement underneath RevOps? How do you empower the leaders that are listening or the enablement professionals that are listening today to strike out from underneath what is a more conventional structure and go to the leadership and say, hey, like, I listened to this episode. And I listened to Sarah. My God, she's dialed. She knows what the hell she's talking about. We need a more meaningful seat at the table. I think that's easier said than done. Any advice you would give folks to emulate the model that you've set at Procore? Definitely easier said than done and also requires you to have very candid conversations with your operational leaders, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't, especially if you're reporting into someone, you don't want to go make them look bad. That's not good for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but rather, how do you have that candid conversation and say, hey, Danny, I, you know, you're rocking the ops organization. And honestly, I don't care where I report because to me, that doesn't matter. Uh, to me, it's all around having a seat at the table and having a voice as we go through what is enablement at this organization and how do we want to continue to grow that. And there's just no way that someone who is a truly ops leader, right, can represent that. Now, there are VPs of revenue that have both an ops and enablement background. And I think that's a very appropriate place, especially if you're just establishing yourself in an enablement leadership role. It's great to have that person that can give you air cover and help as you figure out what is an executive review. But if you're going in and you've led multiple enablement organizations, we all know this. Um, even the role I'm in, it was originally at a director level. And I kind of laid out a plan and said, here's what I need to do to execute. 
that's not a director. That's a VP. And that VP is reporting into revenue because of the change that you need to make. Here's what I would do. Here is the resources that I would need. And here's the timeline that you can expect that I'd execute that upon. Um, and so it's being, it, it's not necessarily focusing on where it reports, because I think then you get into the human side of people getting butthurt, if you will. <laughs> um, but rather, what do we need to do? And what does it take to do that? And how would I have to make that change? Um, and then I think it's really important that at QBRs and QAMs that we have a executive review of where enablement stands and have that checkpoint with leadership of what's working and not working. Um, and you have to go into that eyes wide open because they might have a very different opinion than what you think is working in the field. Um, but having that conversation is the most important thing that we can do because ops leaders do it. HR leaders do it, right? Revenue leaders do it. So you're putting yourself on that playing field with them. So I focus a lot less on layer reports and more what do you need to do to make it happen and what what support would you need, right? So as an example, working with our CRO right now yeah. is so important to Procore because they hadn't had, enablement had been a training organization versus an enablement organization. And he really wanted to make that shift. Yeah. And that's great, right? I love that he was in that direction, uh, but that takes a lot. And it takes a lot of him telling his team what his expectations are because it's something they had to change the mindset of how they worked with that team. Okay. So as I'm hearing you talk about having these, you know, at times difficult conversations, these conversations that can mm -hmm. be nerve wracking as you don't want to appear as though you're biting the hand that feeds you if you currently sit within ops and you want to sort of have now all of a sudden a more equal level playing field. I was listening to an interview with a CRO and he was talking about how we inherently perceive conflict and conflict in sort of air quotes when we have these hard conversations. And obviously mm -hmm. there's a stigma with conflict that's bad and people's feelings are hurt. And he wanted to reframe this idea of hard conversations and conflict that if those hard conversations produce results that are for the betterment mm -hmm. of the organization, the company, and the shareholders, then that's okay. And that we shouldn't shy away from having those hard conversations because in one moment, conflict could exist. And then you could be hugging the person you are in air quotes conflict with afterwards because it leads to the results that you both aspire to. Sarah, are there any salient moments even in you sort of evangelizing this cause as the Joan of Arc of enablement is what it sounds like? where you've had almost borderline conflict conversations, but at the end, you've come out the other side and both you and the person you were engaging with are better for it. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I totally agree. I'm not sure which CRO that was, but I think conflict is a really important part of growing an organization. Orgs that are flatlined, right, um, are, the, are the ones that it's really nice to work there. Like, for example, I've heard, I've heard, and I've never worked at Adobe, but I've heard this, you know, it's just kind of nice, um, which is great. Right? That's the person you want to be. But us in this high growth tech environment, you can't go in and just say yes to everything. Um, and I've seen enablement leaders do that because they want to please the CRO. But remember, CROs, they want people to, to push them and make them better. And if you're sitting at their table and you're constantly saying yes, they're just going to overlook you instead of looking to you for advice or a different perspective of where they need to go. Um, I worked with a CRO at RingCentral and 
you know, he always would tell me, he was like, I call you because you just think of things so differently than I do. And I need that other voice as I'm thinking holistically about my revenue organization. And so I think it's really important that we run towards conflict, but you're able to see the other person's point of view. Mm. Um, I go back to marriage yeah. <laughs> and I'm living this right now, right? It's, it's hard to listen to somebody else's perspective, but you have to fully understand their perspective to then bring something else to the table that's contrary. So I'd always say to that CRO, I'd say, hey, well, tell me where you, what, where you were coming from or what you're thinking initially. That way I fully understood so that I could give a different perspective, even though he was already open to it. I think it's so critical that you understand the other person's perspective. So I often have people on my team, they're like, I'm really scared. This PMM leader is, you know, they just don't like enablement. And I'm like, hmm. Okay. We also don't have to like each other. Uh, we have to respect each other. Those are different things. Yeah. Uh, but if I go into it and I say, hey, Danny, walk me through uh, how you were thinking about this project. Da, 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 da. Repeat it back to Danny, what he just told me and say, you know, something I actually was thinking through as you were walking me through where you were going is X. I think that could create an even more holistic solution as we mm -hmm. go to market with X product. It's a different way to introduce it. That's not, Danny, I heard what you were doing. I think it's stupid. And I think we should do it this way. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's just different perspectives. So I always say, listen, repeat, suggest. Totally. I am hearing you talk about this and the relationship you developed with Ring Central CRO, your courage to be a truth teller. And I think oftentimes people will anticipate if I contradict or I go against what my leader tells me, I'm somehow pigeonholing myself or I'm jeopardizing my chances of upward mobility. And the number of times I've interviewed CROs who say, God, like everything changed when I became a CRO. No one would actually challenge me. And it became this echo chamber of everything they said was great and perfect. And that isn't actually what they were looking for. And one CRO commented that because he was so fed up with sycophantic behavior of everyone saying, oh, great idea that he trimmed down his QBR size as far as who was in the room by like multiple sort of, I would say degrees, because he just had to whittle it down to the people in the room who would challenge him and not in, again, a combative way, but in a constructive way. And I, I just so relish that that's been your experience as well, because I think we need to remind CROs that it's easier said than done in a top-down organization to rise up and challenge and not feel that that might be crippling to your career, your financial well-being. So welcome that as best you can. And then for the people who are trying to find themselves in that forum, are you actually being a contributing member to the discussion in ways that don't just I don't serve as a contrarian to be contrarian, but to intelligently and impactfully offer counterpoints when they're warranted. Totally agree. Two things I always tell my teams is uh, one, you should never be in a meeting if you have, if you don't speak at all, mm -hmm. like what's the point. Mm -hmm. And if you're only speaking is to say that sounds good. That's also a meeting you shouldn't be in. <laughs> uh, secondly, it, to CROs, I, I always prep mine, especially when I have my team maybe presenting. 
of, hey, Danny, here's where you can engage in that conversation? Or could you make sure that you open the floor at X point? So I think to enablement and to revenue leaders, prep for things like QBR, when there are more controversial things you want to bring up. And as leaders call on folks, um, that will create a culture where people feel that they can speak up in future states. So I think it is really important for us as C-suite leaders, right, to make sure that we are thinking about the points that we want to challenge our teams and not waiting for them to necessarily bring it up in the conversation, but opening the floor creating a space for it. Amazing. Well, I'm looking at the clock, Sarah, and we have certainly exhausted more than our fair share of wisdom and advice and counsel from someone who's walked many miles in the ops and enablement realm. So thank you very much for that. I'm taking with me the importance of being tenacious to being brokers of the human side of who we interact with. And of course, the courage to be in rooms where we are certainly saying more than just that sounds great. Uh, If you've listened to Reveal, you know where I'm going next, which is the same question that we ask all of our guests. So I hope this doesn't come as a surprise or an ambush. So uh, we'll, we'll see momentarily. But Sarah, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? Go getters. Yeah. Why's that? That's one word. Yeah. Kind of. Hyphenated. (laughs) I mean, that's a hyphenated word Um, because they'll do anything to Mm -hmm. get to the right deal. Yeah. Um, And I don't mean that negatively. I mean that in a very positive way. They will try that new technology. You just have to prove to them it's going to be something that's going to help them go get more revenue, right? Go get to the next phase in their career. Go get... Uh, the next deal on the table. And that's why I call them go-getters. Amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to another weekly episode of Reveal from the Gong Studios. Joined today by Sarah Gross, the VP of Revenue Enablement at Procore. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, then head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.